This is The Process on Sirius XM Stars. Offering guidance and insight into the college admissions process. Now, here are Eric J. Ferda and Eileen Cunningham-Fikens. Welcome to a special edition of The Process on Sirius XM Stars, live from the Dwight Englewood School in Englewood, New Jersey. Eric Ferda, Dean of Admissions at the University of Pennsylvania, joined by my partner in the process. Eileen Cunningham-Fikens, Director of College Counseling at the Dwight Englewood School. Woo! So, Eileen, yeah. this is our 23rd show. Wow. Imagine that. That is a long time. 16 on Stars, Sirius XM 109. To show the process dives into the journey of the college admissions process. We'll explore the inside of the college search process to help all of you, parents, students, counselors, educators, heads of upper school, ask your questions, regardless of where you are in the timeline, to provide useful and actionable information. We want to hear from you this evening. We wrote some questions down on index cards, but maybe someone even wants to go up to the microphone and ask a question. And by the way, for all the families here, for the parents, for the students, you know, you've already gone through this college process. You chose the Dwight Englewood School, correct? No cue, Scott, everyone is nodding, okay? You've already gone through this process. And so for the college admissions process, your geography just gets a little wider. It doesn't have to be a commuting distance. Although even with the sixth graders that we met with tonight, they had no idea who we were and it was so much fun. <laughs> They're like, why are you asking us all these questions? A number of them, it's, Eileen, you asked, how long of a commute do you have? For some, it was a half an hour. For some, it was an hour. And I know as parents, you're thinking about, well, what's actually realistic? What, what are the logistics like? When you're looking at college, then you have a much wider area of geography, but you have to have conversations about that. Sure. You have to have conversation not only about how far the school is from home, but does each school have what you're looking for in terms of academic programs? in terms of culture on campus, the overall size of the institution, the composition of the student body, whatever those facilities might be that will advance your knowledge in a certain area, whether, whether that's labs, whether it's a co-op program, right? So in a way, you're, it's true. You Applying to a school like Dwight Angwood and going through that, that application process uh, for an independent school is almost a microcosm and a foreshadowing of what will occur when you're looking at colleges. And if you think about it that way, maybe it'll take a little of the anxiety off of it because you've already experienced it. You already have your chops doing that. You know what feels right to you, and that's a great way to go through this process, right? It's not necessarily who's going to admit me as much as who earns the right to be on my college level. So if we shift that perspective and we look at it from a consumer perspective, I want every student feel as if they are empowered, and it's the one area of the process where they have 100% control. No college can make you apply. Let's they can move. only earn a spot on your list. Let's right? on your list. You know what? It's around that time of the show, Eileen, where I have to plug what? <laughs> Eileen loves when I talk about this. I have a blog. He does. And it's kind of a running joke with us, but page 217, where I have information about the college admissions process, we talk about this. Yeah. And one of the entries that we, we discussed in the past is flipping the list. So for all the families here tonight, for the parents and for the students, I know you have index cards, but I'm going to give you a mental exercise right now. And I want you to bring this home if your, your parent isn't here or if your child isn't here. I want you to think about what the attributes are of the college environment you are looking for. 
So students, I want you to think about what, what does college look like? And you're not saying I need to go to Penn or I need to go to this specific institution. What are the qualities, characteristics, attributes? Caroline, right? Caroline said she wants a campus. She wants a place with a great amount of academic opportunities. She wanted a place with, with a lot of spirit. And she really wanted to take on leadership roles in school. This isn't about her college list. This is about Caroline looking at a place like Dwight Englewood. So if you take an index card and write down these attributes, whatever it is that you're looking for, I want you to compare that as parents with what your child writes down. Okay, I call this parent alignment. I want you to see whether you're on the same page or not. Because you really have to figure that out now and not when, oh, I was just admitted to these five places, Eileen. <laughs> And I'm realizing that the family dynamic is going like this. Right. So you have to be careful. So you're, you've already applied to college. You, you already know what you're doing. So, you know, really connecting those different pieces. I think that's really important. And it may change over time. Those characteristics may sure. change over time. But I would love for you, if you come to visit Penn's campus as an example or any other campus, that you put that index card in your pocket or however you wrote that down. And that you then test some of those assumptions that you had going all the way through. Because what are we at the end of right now? The rolling spring break. Right. Where we have so many people visiting our campus. Well, we're a little bit past that because May 1 was the national admission candidate decision deadline. That's right. Right? But before that, in the month of April, that was probably one of your busiest visit months on yes. campus, right? And as I see families going through, they look glazed over. They are this is our eighth college visit this week, and it's Tuesday, okay? And so I, I sat, I'll sit down with a group and say, okay, well, the schools that you visited yesterday, what did you take away? Oh, it was pretty, it was raining, I like the tour guide. You need to know when you're going in to a visit what it is that you're looking for and what, you're, what information you're going to try to receive, either through the information session, the tour, visiting classes, just the dynamic of going through different spaces on that campus, and then, again, going back and testing some of your assumptions. Because you may love what you saw, but you have to go back to some of the assumptions that you've had. Two notes on that, too. Every time I speak with a family who is either embarking on a college tour or has just returned from a college tour, they seem to cite the tour guide. The tour guide has an incredible impact on how you perceive an institution. But if we're doing some exercises, I want us to all do a little mental exercise. Do you remember back to when you toured this campus? Do you remember the person who led that tour? Tour guides are great, but they're not the only source of information. And to a certain degree, they are scripted. They're trained, right? So I think it's... And admission officers are not. <laughs> to give tours. Anyway. To give tours. Um, but I think it's really important to... Not only go on the tour, because you're going to hear a lot of information that is relative and valid. There are typically five points on the star of any college tour, right? It's going to be the residence hall and, the, and or the dining hall, the student center, the library, the academic building, the lab or lecture hall, and then the gym, right? Everyone shows the field house or the sports center, because we're all going to use that five-story climbing wall. Right? Absolutely. But there's something about that, right? Because it gives the, the tour guide the opportunity to speak about student life and about activities. And if it's a strong athletic program at the school, at the school then it will give them an opportunity to talk about school spirit, etc. But 
if you really want to get the inside scoop on a college, pick up a copy of the student newspaper. What are they talking about on campus? Because typically they're student produced. So those topics that are of interest to the student body will most likely be covered in the student newspaper. Check out the bulletin board and the kiosk. What kind of lecturers are coming to campus or performing artists? Or maybe it's a political discussion, right? How activistic is that student population? And you'll be able to get to gauge that a little bit. And I always think it's a great idea to be a spy. So find a frequently traveled, a high traffic area on campus, and then just sit there for 20 minutes and observe. Are students walking together? Do they look happy? Do they not? Little, little caveat on the happiness piece is... Oh, yes, hotel. <laughs> feel like we're in studio now, yeah, just totally. going at each other, <laughs> is know when you're visiting a place where they are in that That's academic true. year. Because we were talking before and people said, oh, on Penn's campus it was spring fling. It's like if you walk in during the spring festival and everyone looks happy, there's a reason for that. It's the spring festival. Right. You could walk around and students seem to really be wearing the stress on their shoulders. You should know whether it's midterm time or finals time or something else that's going on on the campus that can really influence, you know, kind of the tempo of the campus Absolutely. and what, what it is that, that you're perceiving. Don't go anywhere because our live event continues up next from the Dwight Englewood School in Englewood, New Jersey. This is The Process on Sirius XM Stars, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Process on Sirius XM Stars, offering guidance and insight into the college admissions process. Here again are Eric J. Ferda and Eileen cunningham Fikins. Welcome back to a special edition of The Process on Sirius XM Stars, live from the Dwight Englewood School in Englewood, New Jersey. Eric Ferda, Dean of Admissions at the University of Pennsylvania, and joined by my partner in the process. Eileen cunningham Fikens, Director of College Counseling at the Dwight Englewood School. So in a second, we're going to ask her a question. So, okay, this college process, for some of you that are rising juniors right now, rising seniors, this process can go all the way through to now. Here we are sitting in the middle of May, and we're going to the wait list tonight. Actually, it's 7.31 right now, and I'm sitting here. The University of Pennsylvania just admitted students off the wait list. Literally in the last, actually, we, it was 7 o'clock. And 7 o'clock, so our listeners on the, on the West Coast, we're not interrupting school. We're not interrupting the school day. Students are, aren't getting pinged as they're taking an AP exam saying, check your portal. You know, need to be sensitive to how we're communicating our information. So for, for all the students here and for the families, you know, thinking about, you know, May 1 is that reply date, as we've already discussed. You're admitted to a number of schools. You have to make a choice. You're visiting colleges, revisiting colleges during the month of April. Make a decision by May 1. You're going to remain active on a couple wait lists, perhaps. And we'll talk about the list later a little bit more. But if you stayed on a wait list and said, yes, I'd like to remain on that wait list, sent in an update letter through your portal that gets updated into your application, some schools right now are communicating only two weeks after, really, that May 1 reply date that they're being admitted off of the wait list. Okay, so let's hold it right here for a second because I need to talk to you about something. I'm seeing some shifts, and I want verification on this. Okay. I saw a shift this year in college admissions, and I, a lot of our colleagues on your side of the desk at different colleges have shared with me that they underestimated the yield on admits in previous years, meaning that they admitted a certain amount of students, but more said yes to their offer of admission. So what I witnessed this year 
were a lot of our colleagues telling us that they were going to be more conservative in their offers of admission because they need to hit their target, but they don't want to come in heavy again, right? Because it's already a strain from previous years. And so what I'm seeing is more institutions using their wait list to get up to their target so that they don't over-enroll. What's your take on that? I think the dynamic is this is a human process. And I think for parents and, and students sometimes, the human process means there isn't complete predictability of what colleges, what schools I'm going to get into, what the outcomes are. On the college admission side, we're depending on 17 and 18-year-olds to make decisions with their families about where it is that they're going to attend. And so it's an imperfect science in that right. way on both sides. So I do feel over the last few years, probably Eileen, because of some fluctuations and in increases in our applicant pools, the changing of the SATs, I mean, there's other things that are operating in this environment that either the, the schools as well as the students and families don't have complete control over. So I agree. I think a number of schools, including the University of Pennsylvania this year, went out with just fewer offers of admission. Going out conservatively means you admitted fewer students to get your class. Maybe you'll buffer your yield a little bit and say, well, even if it increases by a couple percentage points, we'll still be able to go to the wait list. And I, I know at Penn specifically, but I think that in general, that some schools have gone out more conservatively and have planned to go to that, to that wait list. So, I don't know. You want to go to a question? I would love to okay. go to a question. Is that Joe A. in the back with a question? First of all, thanks for, uh, for bringing the show here tonight. I think it's a great for us as a school and great to have you here, Eric. So, thanks. Um, I guess one question to follow up what you just said about the early decision is why actually is it that schools are taking more and more students so early? That because developmentally for lots of high school students it is I think earlier than they're really ready to make that uh, necessarily to make that commitment and so it's a place where I see a little bit of stress sometimes in, in our kids. So I'm just wondering what from your end makes that um, and not only you I do think it's, it's, a, it's, it's a real trend. Um, make that something that continues to, looks like it's continuing to trend in that same way. Certainly. And, and also as part of this question, some schools, now think about this for a second, is some schools have early decision two. The deadline, so still binding, the deadline is the same as regular decision applications, like January 5th. So perhaps part of this is developmentally, they need to be somewhere by January of their, of their senior year. So early decision two, Penn does not have this, but I've seen, seen this, this program grow. So the same application deadline as regular decision, but you're finding out earlier. Right. Sometimes from so, maybe the second week of March to the middle of March. Sometimes it's even late February. Okay. So if the deadline is January 1 through January 5th, sometimes those decisions for an early decision two round will come in a full month prior to the regular decision. So I, I think there's a history to early decision, and part of this is what you'll hear as enrollment management, having some predictability to who's going to show up on our campus next year. So that's a big part of you know, having a plan like an early decision or early action. My other response, though, is if we did away with early action or early decision or any of these early plans and had a, let's say, maybe a January date, we would probably have to shift the whole process. Because practically and operationally, we receive around 7,000 applications early decision to the University of Pennsylvania, and then another 38,000 regular decision applications by January 1. If we were to do away with these programs, 
we could predict our yield after a couple of years. We'll figure it out. I do think it would shift the whole process a bit earlier. Maybe we would need a, a, a December 1 deadline for everybody. Oh, so regular decision would move up. Because practically speaking, we couldn't. I think two things would happen. We'd have to move the, the deadline earlier for regular decision, or just call it the only plan. What do you call it that? The only the plan. The only plan. I like that. Okay. Because if we just received 45,000 applications like we did in the past, we need time to evaluate Review. those applications. Yeah. I think a second piece may happen, though. And think about this. For those students that were admitted early decision or early action or maybe under some preferred deadlines, all of a sudden they don't know where they're going. And this is sometimes unintended consequences. They don't know where they're going. Now, instead of applying to one school or maybe two or three if they got an early action, guess what? They're now applying to eight to ten schools. And our 45,000 applications just became 60,000 applications. So, so really, for, for the students here, for the, for the families, if you're ready and you know that this is something that fits with your thoughtful process, then go for it. If you're not ready, then don't. Sound good? Let's go to another question. This is a question from a rising senior. Do you think Penn will ever become test optional? So what we love about Sirius XM Radio Stars 109 is I'll take that question and then we'll kind of lift it back a little bit. So a number of schools, Eileen, you've spoken about this before, about how many test optional schools are there? Almost a thousand schools in the United States are now test optional, meaning that they do not rely on any standardized test as an element of the application review process. Some of them will use the transcript and the other elements of the application, which we already know. List of extracurricular involvement, letters of recommendation, and a personal statement written by the student. Remember, the transcript is always going to be the jewel in the crown of any application, because that's the academic record for at least three years if the student is applying early decision, or three and a half years if the student is applying under a regular decision deadline, right? So, and, and some schools are test flexible, and I know there's too much jargon sometimes. Send us whatever you've taken, including AP results. Right. NYU does this, for example. You can send up to three subject test scores, two A or three AP scores in lieu of sending an SAT or an ACT. And there are those colleges that might require an additional essay in lieu of the testing as well. Yes. So they, they will have different combinations of requirements. So, but let's get back to the question, Eric, shall we? I was filibustering, actually. I know. So, I, there's a couple schools of thought here. One is that you go test optional because it is a real barrier uh, financially and, and also just for students who just don't feel like they can take the test and sit in that room for, for a few hours, that it becomes another level of anxiety. And for schools that go test optional, and this goes to the early decision question, guess what usually happens to schools that go test optional? Their applications go up. So again, maybe that's what the goal is, or it's to broaden the applicant pool in one way or the other. The way we feel about testing at Penn is it is one element of a comprehensive review process. There is predictive validity to the first year of college uh, achievement through standardized tests. Even though they are, they have their own flaws, their own biases, you have to recognize that. 
I do not see the University of Pennsylvania going test optional, but I think that we need to look at this in light of the courses taken, the grades received, again, going over your high school profile here at the Dwight Englewood School, getting a sense of, well, what does a rigorous curriculum look like? Sure. What courses are being taken? And in combination, GPA, courses and grades, really, and standardized testing, combining those two pieces together gives us a much stronger indicator and predictor of college success in the first year. I think where college admissions may be going, though, however, particularly with individuals on our own campus, on Penn's campus, the study of grit, passion, and perseverance. How can you get to some of those what are called non-cognitive abilities where students can really shine in a certain environment because they're going to work through it? And how can we try to assess some of those pieces? How do we get that from some of the information from the teacher recommendations and through other parts of the application? How about another question? Um, so how do you see the most competitive college application changing over the next five years, and how has the Varsity Blues scandal affected the process? From your side of the desk from at the Dwight Angle School. From my side of the desk, I see two major shifts um, that are already starting to occur. I'm seeing a greater emphasis on writing, and I'm seeing a greater elasticity with how a student presents himself through the process. Right. So whether that's a video, whether that's a, um, a free response and they can use this space however they choose, whether it's a greater emphasis on a student's ability to articulate what their goals are, I think that is something that I don't know if you can get that through all the elements that are currently in place. So that's part of it for me. That's a big part of it. I'm going to connect the two parts of the question together because I think they actually go hand in hand. And one part of this is anything that we do in the world, like we could sit here and talk about the college process, you know, from the University of Pennsylvania, Dwight Englewood School. You know, when you think about, you know, this doesn't oper operate in isolation. I'll give a different example. 2008, the financial crash. Okay, so this was 11 years ago for the students applying to college. So you were in like second grade when this took place, right? First grade, really. Is, you know, other things are going on in the world. Now, Varsity Blues isn't a global financial crash. However, it is something that is more of that macro impact on our work in college admissions, college counseling, as well as college admissions. So I think the shifts that are going to take place are actually go hand in hand with what you said, Eileen, and Varsity Blues. And that is, we're going to spend a lot more of our time trying to authenticate, mm -hmm. audit, and make sure. You know, it was one thing to say, oh, an essay was written, and someone looked at that essay, and, you know, the, not only was the thesaurus out, but, you know, someone really got coached up on that essay. However, you know, there were elements there as re reading that essay that it resonated with other parts of the application. You know, okay. this wasn't completely... You know, here's a student with, you know, a, a C in English and just submitted something that sounded like, you know, John Steinbeck wrote it. And so, you know, and those are called, like, we're not going to put those pieces together. You're going to say, okay, something's not right here. I think what's really going to take place is we're going to have to spend a lot more of our time verifying the information that's in the application, which becomes another hurdle for us internally sure. and for us operationally. I think the other piece here is for students, there's a lot in this world that's outside of our control in every walk of our lives. 
And if you can focus, and I know it's difficult to focus on, again, your own interests, your own ideas, pursuing what you're interested in, other things are going to go on around you, but don't get consumed by those things. But I think operationally, this really will change our work. And so I think those are some of the changes that we're going to see over the next five years. You know, when you submit a website to us, there's times when, at a certain stage of this process, that we have people pounding into that website and saying, okay, you sent us this link saying this is your work. Okay, we're going to go into that. Is there anything really there? You know, what is it that you're trying to show to us? So you're talking about the authenticity of voice, of narrative, as much as the authenticity of somebody's athletic prowess, perhaps, or academic achievement, or test score, which is all wrapped up in Varsity Blues, right? Correct. You know, credentialing, credentialing, what is authentic. Is so this is probably the biggest fraudulent. challenge that I think students have going through the process. But certainly as a counselor, I think that it's our mission I know it's my mission to help a student figure out what their narrative is and how to communicate that narrative. And I think the most challenging aspect of the application itself for students is the essay. The transcript's pretty much done by the time they're in the application process, right? I mean, they can't go back and rewrite freshman year. Mm -hmm. The tests are just that. The standardized tests are just that, right? If they haven't been involved in extracurricular activities, it's a little bit disingenuine to all of a sudden start 20 of them in the fall of senior year. It's going to raise some questions or ring some bells. So how do a student communicate who they are by demonstrating their involvement, right? And does, that, does that kind of coincide with who they are as a learner? what they're stating their interests, I hate this word passions, right? Mm -hmm. Ugh, it's so overused. But what their interests are, what engages them, what gets their, 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 their blood pumping, whatever. That's pr probably the biggest challenge. And, you know, the students out there, I think the feeling is they have to write about something huge, either cataclysmic or just like mind-blowing, in order to stand out. So as an admissions professional, how do, you, how do you see through that? How do you get through to verify if a narrative really does match? I think, no, no, I think that might be helpful to hear for me as a counselor as I work with students as they're crafting those essays. Well, let, let's think about this. Every element of an application is an opportunity, whether it's two teachers that are writing about your work mm -hmm. in the classroom setting. And I want you to think about those because this process is about drawing connections. It's not, here's a single element, whether it's a test score or an essay that seems to be like so well-crafted and really communicates the students, you know, identity. One, one piece is not going to get you in a school. One piece may not get you into a school, and that's your transcript. Okay? Okay. So what you need to draw, you know, kind of connections across the different parts of the application. I think when I hear something through the teacher letters and then the counselor letter about the type of person, the young person that they're writing about as adults in a community, it starts framing, you know, some picture in my mind of who that person is. And then you go to that last voice. That last voice through an essay and sometimes through interviews through our alumni interviewers or on some campuses with an admission officer, 
is you know, how is the, the student describing themselves? And actually, you know, what do you choose to write about? It's, this is what I don't like about some essays, is you're trying to cover like from birth to 18 years old and making these connections along that way, which then automatically leads you to applying early decision at the University of Pennsylvania. Bye. You know, in 650 when I was, words. In 650 <laughs> words or less. When I was six years old, it was this. And then don't, you can't cover that much ground in, in any type of writing. This is what I would like you to do. And this is what I think becomes material for more successful college essays. Successful meaning that you actually communicated something that is real. And you're able to do that in a, in a way that someone who doesn't know you learns something about you. Okay. Okay. So the first part is, when does your mind race? You know, if you put down right now, when we're talking to, you know, sophomores, you know, rising juniors and rising seniors and their families, is you can't say, okay, I have to schedule this out, and two weeks before the deadline, whatever that may be, three weeks, a month, whatever it is, I'm going to sit down on Wednesday at 9 p.m. and write my college essay. And go into that just by, you know, turning on the computer screen and logging in. And going, you know, to write that, to in, write that in one in one sitting. In, in one sitting. This is what I want you to do. Again, we handed index cards out tonight. You know, this is what we love is between now, the middle of May, before you even start the summer, and if you really take this information in, I think you'll be really productive when you actually need to sit down and write that essay. I don't know when you're inspired, and Eileen, as you said, you know, passion and inspiration sometimes. It's, Next Thursday at noon, I'm going to be inspired, okay? Because <laughs> I'm scheduling this out. It doesn't happen that way. Whatever it is for you, I don't know what it is. It may be a long run. It may be, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night, you just solved global warming, but you forgot it by the next morning because you forgot what you just dreamt about. But you woke up there for a couple minutes. Now scribble the words down. What I want you to do is to find a catalyst of an idea something that does capture you in the moment, whenever that moment mm -hmm. is. You know, for those sixth graders down the hall right now, who, you know, they're having these moments on the stage where someone can capture it. Now, you don't have to do this at sixth grade, so don't worry about it, okay? Yeah, for the juniors and seniors. Is, but capture those moments. Write it down. Because I can look and see, I was in the student production. I was the director of the student production. I wrote the student production. Wonderful. Fantastic. Guess what? A lot of other people did that too, which is equally wonderful. But what we're asking in this process is to extract the ideas from it. How did you feel? What did you learn? You know, student government, right? right. In student government. And so what happened when you had to make a position that maybe your peers didn't completely agree with? And How you know, did you learn? What did, what you, did learn? you learn? Yeah. You know, take a look at the essay prompts on the common application. You know, they're not there to just try to contort your ideas. They're prompts. All they're trying to do is to motivate you to think about ideas in different ways. And so I think if you do this, then when you sit down next Wednesday, whatever it is, whatever. at 10 o'clock, you're going to be able to, to, to write that essay. But again, there's going to be different points that are connected here. I like to tell students, and I, and I hope it resonates with them, to focus on the three-letter words of how and why as opposed to what and when. Um, and if they are going to focus on the what and when, they're just using that to set up the how and why. Mm -hmm. So the, the actual topic they're writing about, 
the anecdote, the experience, the winning goal, the missing winning goal, mm -hmm. whatever it happens to be, stay with me now, is the Uber. It's the vehicle that transports them as the passenger to the reader. Mm -hmm. What is it they're trying to leave with the reader? So when the reader finishes that application and finishes that essay, they've arrived. They have a better understanding of who that person is that sat down to write that. So it doesn't have to be something cataclysmic or, you know, this huge event right. in their life. It could be something as easy as, you know, or small or mundane as, you know, why they like Velcro on their sneakers more than tying their shoelaces. Who doesn't? I know, right? But, but it, as long as they're using that towards a greater reflection, that, and, and that, I think that's what I'm hearing from you. It is. And we're talking about a very specific essay right now. Right. That's the, kind of the broad essay. As you're mapping out the schools that you're applying to, you need to take a look at what other questions they may ask of you. As an example, you know, the why our school question, sure. okay? You could say it's like the ubiquitous why our school question, and they want to know whether you're interested, whether you're knowledgeable, demonstrate your knowledge about the school. Take a look at those words. Penn's question currently is, you know, given the school or program that you apply to at the University of Pennsylvania, we have four undergraduate schools, you can apply to about 13 programs actually at Penn as a high school student into our institution. Given the school or program that you applied to at the University of Pennsylvania, help us understand your intellectual and academic path, paths and how you see that developing. So we've already done one thing. We've distinguished between academic and intellectual. Yep. You know, and this isn't, wow, I'm going to major in this and then I'm going to go to graduate school for that and then that's going to be my career. How are you intellectually interested? How would you like to engage with our faculty? And so now you're, you could think, well, I have the essay that was sent to every school. Penn's now asking me, or any other school's asking me, this kind of academic and intellectual path. And then some other schools may ask a series of short answer questions, which honestly I find, and maybe this goes back to the other question before, those short answer questions, like 200 words. Those are harder. But they could be more revealing for this reason. Okay. They're less, less scripted. They're less ah. like, oh my gosh, I need to do this. And so in combination again, because this is one of the larger points, in combination now it's not, what about the essay? It's, well, I have this essay that's covering maybe more ground, but then I have some school-specific opportunities. Right. And how do they fit together? We have to take another quick break, but don't go anywhere because the process continues live from the Dwight Englewood School in Englewood, New Jersey. You're listening to The Process on Sirius XM Stars, offering guidance and insight into the college admissions process. Here again are Eric J. Ferda and Eileen cunningham Fikins. Welcome back to a special edition of The Process on Sirius XM Stars, live from the Dwight Englewood School in Englewood, New Jersey. I'm Eric Ferda, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm joined, as always, by my partner in The Process. Eileen cunningham Fikins, Director of College Counseling at the Dwight Englewood School. Does anyone else have a question? Hi, everybody. I'm Lynn A. Um, hi, Lynn and first a. of all, hi there. I'm the daughter of a college admissions officer. And so I spent my childhood watching my dad bring home a briefcase of applications from a very illustrious school. And he developed tennis elbow because he would sit at the table and read applications. So first of all, thank you for your work. I can't even imagine 45,000 applications. And I don't know what percentage of those you read. But I used to say to people all the time, like, there are real human beings on the other side of that application. And so I appreciate you guys doing this 
because sometimes you're just faceless bureaucrats out there reading, and I know that that's not really who you are. Um, I want to ask a question, and I feel really mixed about this. Um, I think the common application is like the greatest gift to students and parents in the history of anything. But I also wonder to what extent it's created that sort of explosion of applications because it's so easy to just click off a bunch of schools, right? Because you only, I mean, you know, and, and I have a kid who, when she saw that there were supplemental materials to some applications, she's exactly. like, I don't think I'm applying <laughs> to that school. But, you know, so I wonder to what extent it, it, it is leading a lot of people to submit their application to you, maybe not having really thought about the school so much, and how do you distinguish that wheat and chaff um, in, in your process? So how do you, I guess, how do you figure out the intentionality of the student behind the application? Do, right? do you have a limit at Dwight Englewood of how many no. schools a student can apply to? No. I don't think it's ethical for us to make that decision. What's We're the range the, then? What I would say think? the average number of applications for students this past year was somewhere between like 8.6 or 8.7 or something like that. It was like 8 to 9, right? So it's a, it's a fairly manageable list. And um, I, I know that in our office, what we're really hoping students do is to build a list which has an arc to it so that it's not just eight reaches and one high probability school, but that there is a conscious decision of, of creating a list that has range um, so that it's a few reach schools, one or two high probability schools, and then some mid-range schools in terms of um, levels of selectivity. I call that admissions alignment. If you're looking at testing ranges and your tests are, for every school you apply to, in the bottom quarter of their admitted profile, uh. you know, you're probably setting yourself up for some tough decision. It doesn't mean that you won't get into one, but then to the common app question, it doesn't mean by throwing 50 of them out there in that range, it's like, you know, I'm going to get in, into, into it a school. It doesn't increase your odds at any one of them, I guess, right? Exactly. So I think a couple different pieces. I, I served on the common application board for a long period of time, so I need to put that out as a caveat. But within that, I've seen at presentations, at conferences, and the number of applications submitted through the common app over the last almost decade or so, if not longer, has been around five applications. Now students can use other application platforms. There's a coalition application, Apply Texas, California application system. So there's other vehicles where students can apply. I guess my caution here for any student is, for some schools, just by checking the box, yes, you're submitting that application. But as the question, you know, when the question was asked, for many, there's going to be some other work involved. And what I find, is that students start to get fatigued. Because now, talk about bleary-eyed, well, I'm heading into some of these deadlines, and I need to apply to five more schools. And I'm going to rush and do that. Those my, why our school questions tend not to be very pointed towards that school. So it doesn't increase the outcome or, or your chances of admission. I do think by framing eight to 10 schools for both admission and financial aid, we haven't touched on financial aid, you know, I think you're going to give yourself a good opportunity to, to have some options in front of you. Something I'm going to speak at Penn's alumni weekend this weekend, we have graduation on, on Monday leading up to graduation on Monday is alumni weekend. 
So I'll conduct the information session on Saturday morning on Penn's campus. And I'll say this to the, to the group, and that is, if you've applied to eight schools, let's say, and you're admitted to one school, how will you feel? And kind of the looks that we're getting here, I know we're on radio, people aren't looking all that happy right now. Kind of like, really? One out of eight? Well, number one, college admissions is more like baseball and not like football. If you go three out of eight or four out of eight, you're in, you're in, the, world, you're, you know, you're in the World Series, you're in the Hall of Fame. I'm admitted to one school. How many schools are you going to go to, Eileen? One. Now, I think realistically, particularly with some alignment, listening to the advice that, that, that you're giving, Eileen, is that you'll be admitted to three or four schools, meaning that you're going to be denied from some schools and you're going to be on some of those wait lists sure. as well. So be ready for that. Be ready maybe for that first time I didn't get into something. And how are you going to respond to that? And what's your plan you know, to move forward from it? Go to another, another question. Hi, thank you so much for being here. I'm really enjoying listening and learning a lot. Um, so my question is, how does one advise an anxious student that where you go is not really who you'll be? Ooh, what do you way. think, Eric? Where you go is not who you will be. Correct. Isn't there a book along those lines? Like something like that. Something, something like that. I think through any part of life, you need to have, and this is hard, okay? I'm not gonna, I'll never tell anyone how to be a parent, and I'm not going to try to tell people like, the way they should feel or not feel. The piece here is, where do you derive your own self-worth as an individual and as a family? I love sitting up here, speaking to all of you live, speaking to all of you listening to SiriusXM 109 stars, please tune in, is, you know, there's a lot of times it's when you don't get something that you learn the most about yourself. And, you know, you, you could think about the time that the goal didn't go in or you didn't make that catch. You see that in your younger child, too. Okay, for the parents here, you do remember the sixth grade play, even though your child is going to be a junior or senior in high school. You do remember when they didn't make that shot. You do remember when they came home from school and it's like, gee, nobody likes me anymore. No one ever liked me. You know, these are tough moments of growing up. This college process, actually, is a pretty safe and contained way of having some of these experiences. And so, stepping away from it, there may be some intermittent feeling of, gee, I didn't get what I wanted, I was denied, I was waitlisted, what's going on, what's wrong with me? But we know, particularly as parents with perspective on it, that this is an opportunity to learn more about yourself. There's going to be some disappointment, most likely, so you get ready for it. it. So, we're saying it now. But then what comes from it? Does it really matter whether I'm wearing you know, that one t-shirt over another? I'm still the same person. And I do see in some students, actually some of the letters, Eileen, that I get, I'd love letters four years later after I denied a person. Mm -hmm. And they write to me and say, Dean Ferda, I went to this school and I was Phi Beta Kappa. And I just got, you know, this is my trajectory. You really messed up and thank you. Okay? I mean... Do you get a lot of those? Enough. Do you really? To make me feel like I don't have self-worth or self-value. But, <laughs> but, you know, it, it really is, what, what is this process? And I think for the parents that are here, you know, certainly we always want to protect our children. We want to make sure that 
you know, they're safe, that they're happy. We don't want them to be disappointed. While also, if we put a college process in perspective, it's not the end of anything. anything. <laughs> it so, just means that I'm taking another direction. I, I distinctly remember when I was an admissions officer at NYU and I went to a National Association of College Admissions Counseling workshop or conference and the Dean of Admissions at Dartmouth, way back when, spoke to a group of us in the room. Now, he was preaching to the congregation. We were all either admissions professionals or college counselors. And he asked the question, how many of you went to a college or had an undergraduate experience that you felt transformed you and helped shape who you are, what your goals were, what you have become? Every hand in that room went up, and we were all so proud of our undergraduate experience and of our college. And he said, okay, how many of you, keep your hand up, feel that you would have had similar transformative experiences and wonderful experiences, made great friends, learned great things at another institution? Honestly. I think about 99% of the people had their hands held high. A college is an institution, you are an individual. So I don't think any college can, it's an external measure of self-worth. The self-worth that you have intrinsically is what is going to propel you to success and how you take advantage of whatever opportunities are available to you in any institution are going to make you successful. So I think that that's an important distinction to make because there are as many people that go to great institutions that don't necessarily succeed the way that we might define success as there are those who don't go to the you know most selected schools in the country. If you take a look at the Fortune 500 CEO list, the overwhelming majority of those individuals, no offense, but they did not go to the most prestigious or selective colleges in the country. And that gets back to what you said about resilience and grit. Okay. We'll probably have time for another question. Here's Thanks. one from a student. Uh, okay. What's the future of subject tests and standardized tests because some schools do not require them? Standardized tests, um, I think are gonna be with us for a while, but those subject tests, many, many schools who used to require them or strongly recommend them are no longer doing so or they've scaled back right? There's still a few holdouts for those three subject tests. But Eric, what's your view on this? I, I don't see them remaining quite as vibrant or vital as they have been in the past. What's your take? So there's two sides to this equation. One is, and this goes through our minds as we're trying to make policy decisions, particularly around testing or asking an additional essay question or any other type of requirement. And I think subject test is a really good example of this because there may be some, in some way, some disconnect between, between the two. The first part is, what am I going to ask a student to do already in their busy schedules to have to schedule something else and take an exam? The second part on that side of the equation is, what will I ask an admission officer to actually review and put into certain context? And the other side of this is, you know, what value is being delivered? And this is where I see a slight disconnect. And sometimes our jargon, Eileen, you know, on the college admission side can really drive you crazy. 
and confused families. Meaning between strongly recommended or recommended. Recommended, strongly recommended, required, just not even mentioned. And that is, Penn recommends for students to take subject tests, particularly if they're focused on something like engineering or business. But engineering, you know, take that physics subject right. test. We're going to see, you know, we're going to have another demonstration of your ability in a subject that matters in the curriculum, in curriculum. within engineering. So we know that subject tests, as I spoke about before, add value to help us predict how a student will succeed in the first semester of college. So then, Eric, why don't you require subject tests? Why doesn't Penn require them? We also see it as a hurdle. Mm -hmm. We see it as another requirement for students. We see it as another financial burden for some families, even if you can get the waiver, the waiver. On, uh, on the exam. So incrementally, we have to decide whether it's something that we, is an absolute or something that if we have it, we could utilize it and it could be helpful, but in many cases, we will not have it. So it's that equation of the kind of the cost benefit of asking a student to do something else in this process. And we know for many families, I remember when I needed to take the subject test, I went to the University of Pennsylvania and they were required. And three I took, of them? And was one of them writing? You know, it had, to have, it, it, it yeah. had to have been three. Yeah. And I just took the SATs, small high school in upstate New York, had no AP courses, didn't have any AP courses in my high school. My high school doesn't exist anymore, though, too, so maybe that's, that's something <laughs> about, about my small town in upstate New York. I had a great experience there. That being said, I learned about the subject test after I took the SATs and said to myself, and maybe I wasn't prepared enough. I have to take these other three tests, which again then was at a different school because my high school wasn't going to be right. a test administration. So that cost-benefit of what value can we derive and is it worth us asking a student to have to take on that right. responsibility. So, Eileen, any other parting ideas or words? Thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for your questions and your energy and your candor. And I'll see you at the next show. Well, I particularly love the students that are here tonight. I know there's a lot going on yeah, for the parents. You know, having your, your child back is, is really important. That's the process. We'll be back at the same time on the last weekend of the month, right here on Sirius XM Stars 109. Woo -woo. In the meantime, keep the questions and conversation going. Leave us a voice message at any time. Please write this down, 866-993-8267. Or send us an email at theprocess at SiriusXM.com. Have Thank a great you, weekend and good luck with the process.